We're continuing our study of John chapter 5. If you have a Bible, you can open there, or Scripture should be on the uh, overhead. There are printed messages at both exits you can access and grab one either now or later as you like. And uh, there are both printed and audio messages on the church website. I hope you've all had your caffeine this morning and are alert because this is not the easiest text in the world to uh, understand and grapple with. And so we need the Spirit's um, enabling as we approach it. Last week, we saw that Jesus healed the man by the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath, deliberately on the Sabbath. And as a result, it sparked controversy and uh, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because of that. In verse 15, I mean 17, we pick up with, but Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these that you will marvel, so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Father, I mean all will honor the Son, I should say, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Christian faith rests entirely on the correct answer to Jesus' question in Matthew 16, 15, Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? If you get that right, everything follows. If you get it wrong, nothing follows. If Jesus is who the Bible proclaims him to be, whom he claimed to be, if he is the promised Messiah of Israel, if Jesus is the eternal Son of God who took on human flesh and dwelt among us, if he died on the cross for our sins, if he was raised on the third day bodily, if he ascended bodily into heaven and is coming again bodily in power and glory to judge the living and the dead, then really everything else is secondary. That is primary. For example, there may be some difficulties in the Bible that you don't understand. I have some that I cannot understand, but that's secondary. 
you might struggle with some hard questions like, well, why do little children suffer? Or, well, why do people die and they've never had a chance to hear the good news about Christ? Those are hard questions, I grant, but they are secondary to the question of who is Jesus. You might be struggling this morning with some doubts or uh, issues over personal trials or struggles in your life that you cannot resolve. And again, I'm not minimizing those, but I'm saying that they are really secondary. In other words, what I'm saying is what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 when he said that if Christ isn't raised from the dead, then your faith is in vain. You, you've really believed in vain. You're still in your sins, and you might as well eat, drink, and be merry. There's no point in the Christian faith. But if Jesus is who he claims to be and who the Bible proclaims him to be, then the entire Christian faith stands, and all of these other things are really secondary. Now, you've probably, some of you especially who are in college, I remember hearing this when I was in college, You'll have liberal professors, and I've heard liberal theologians say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons claim that Jesus is a very high being, very uh, far up on the totem pole, so to speak, and they even claim to believe in him, but they deny that he is eternal God. Um, there are others who think that Jesus was a great moral teacher and that uh, they respect him as such, but if you pin them down, they would say, well, no, I don't believe that he was God. C.S. Lewis, however, slammed the door on that option in what has become a very often quoted statement from his book, Mere Christianity. He said this, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or... You can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And so you have to decide, as I titled this message, is Jesus crazy or is he God? Those are really the only two options. That decision, of course, will drastically affect the way you live your life and where you spend eternity. So I trust you'll come down on the right side. Now, we just studied last time the story of Jesus healing this man by the pool of Bethesda, a man who was crippled for 38 years. And as I said last time, it's kind of an odd miracle, a different miracle, especially for John, John is the gospel of belief. John wrote all of these things and all of these signs so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and have life in his name through your faith. And yet, oddly, there's no hint that this man who was healed believed. 
When he was healed, he didn't even know who Jesus was. When he found out who Jesus was, he didn't bow down and say, thank you, thank you so much for healing me. There's no word of that. Instead, he went straight to the Jewish authorities, reported to them who Jesus was, who had healed him on the Sabbath, knowing full well that they would harass Jesus for doing that. So you have to ask the question, well, why would John put a miracle like that in his gospel of belief? I think there are two main reasons. First of all, it demonstrates the irrational and yet growing hostility that existed between the Jews and Jesus, and it will mount all the way from here to the cross. It was totally irrational because if a man had the power to heal a paralytic who's been one for 38 years, you would think that the Jews would have put that together and said, wait a minute, even though he did it on our Sabbath, this man must have the power of God. He must at least be a great prophet, if not something greater than that. But they, it says in verse 16, were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Another reason I think that John included this story in his gospel is that it set the stage for Jesus to give a discourse that is one of the greatest statements of his deity in all of Scripture. J.C. Ryle puts it this way, Nowhere else in the Gospels do we find our Lord making such a formal, systematic, orderly, regular statement of his own unity with the Father, his divine commission and authority, and the proofs of his Messiahship as we find in this discourse. And so the bottom line for us is that Christ's amazing claims here to be God demand that we honor him as God and that we submit to him as our Lord. Now, it's interesting because when the Jews accused Jesus of violating the Sabbath, he could have taken a different tack. Sometimes in the Gospels, when they got on Jesus for healing on the Sabbath, he would point out to them the error of their views. He would say something like, well, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or not? And if it is lawful to do good, then why are you harassing me for healing a man on the Sabbath. He could have gone that direction. But instead, he puts his own activity on the Sabbath, in verse 17, on a par with God's activity. And then when the Jews get it and they accuse him of making himself equal with God, in verse 18, rather than denying it with horror, if, if Jesus had been one of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel, one of those men, and the Jews that accused him of making himself equal with God, they would have ripped their robes, they would have fallen down in horror and said, oh, by no means, I, I never intended that anyone would mistake me for God. I mean, he would have just been horrified by that suggestion. But here, Jesus goes on and affirms it emphatically. And our text gives us six ways that Jesus shows himself to be equal with God. First of all, Jesus is equal with God in his nature. 
but he is yet distinct from the Father as the Son. Now, you're going to have to think with me here and track with me. This gets a little deep because we get into the Trinity, okay? But in response to the Jews' accusation that Jesus is breaking the Sabbath and to their persecution, he answers in verse 17, My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. And then John explains in verse 18, For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus calls God my Father, and that was not common for the Jews. Sometimes they would refer to God generally as our Father, not very often. Even more rarely, once in a while, they might say, my father, but they would be quick to say something like, my father in heaven, to distance themselves from God so as not to seem too familiar with him. But Jesus here speaks of God as his father on very intimate terms. Leon Morris puts it this way. He was claiming that God was his father in a special sense. He was claiming that he partook of the same nature as his father. This involved equality. Now later, Jesus will state very explicitly in John 10.30, and it's a good verse for you to know the reference of for if you ever have an opportunity to witness to a person who denies the deity of Jesus. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. And again, the same response from the Jews on that occasion. They picked up stones to kill Jesus. And he said to them, for which of the good works that I do are you going to stone me? And their answer in John 10.33 was, for a good work, we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. They understood his claims. They didn't agree with them, they didn't submit to them, they didn't accept them, but they did get it. They understood exactly what he was saying. Now, while Jesus shares the same nature with the Father, he is equal with God as God, at the same time he is distinct from the Father as the Son of God. Now, that doesn't imply the term the Son of God, that at a point in time, Jesus came into existence. Humanly, we think that, well, there was a time I didn't have a son, now I have a son. That is not what it means, but rather it means, well, first of all, let me point out, that was the heresy that Arius brought up back in the 4th century. Uh, He was an early church heretic, and his mantra was, there was a time in which the Son was not. So he taught that Jesus was the first of all created beings. The early church condemned Arius at the Council of Nicaea, but his heresy lives on today with the Jehovah's Witnesses. John in chapter 1 has already made it clear that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and that all things came into being through Jesus, the Word. And he even states, without him, nothing came into being that has come into being. 
since Jesus, according to Arius and the Jehovah's Witnesses, came into being, that statement would be false. And so they have to rewrite their Bibles at that point. But Jesus is uncreated. He is eternal God. And uh, he didn't become the Son of God when he was conceived in Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit. Rather, he is the eternal Son of God, and it means he shares the same nature as the Father, just as a human son shares his Father's nature. And yet, at the same time, as the second person of the Trinity, the Son is distinct from the Father. Jesus here in our text, and running down through verse 26, uses the word son to refer to himself nine times. So he is emphasizing uh, the uniqueness of his sonship, his divine sonship. Now, as the son of God, he is equal to God and yet subordinate to the father in terms of how they function. The father commands, the son obeys, that sort of thing. And so the biblical statement of the Trinity is that there is one God and there are three persons in the Godhead who are co-eternal and each person is distinct and yet each person is this one God. So difficult stuff, but don't allow yourself to be carried down the path that there was a time Jesus was not. Scripture is clear against that. Secondly, then, Jesus is not only equal to God in his nature, but he's equal with God in his works. And we see that again in verse 17, as well as in verse 19. When Jesus says in verse 17, my father is working until now, and I myself am working, he is linking himself and his activity directly with God's activity. D.A. Carson says, for this self-defense to be valid, the same factors that apply to God must apply to Jesus. Now, the Jews acknowledged that after the Sabbath on the original creation, when God rested, ever since then, God has not rested on the Sabbath, because if God dropped out on the Sabbath, the world and the universe would disintegrate. He holds all things together. And so the Jews acknowledge God did not himself keep the Sabbath. Well, what Jesus is saying here is, if you accuse me of Sabbath breaking, you're accusing God, my father, of Sabbath breaking, because he is my father and he works exactly as I work and I work exactly as he works. He's linking himself with the father's works. And he's saying we both work continuously on the Sabbath. Jesus is also saying, I always have worked on the Sabbath with the Father. In other words, John chapter 1, John says Jesus was involved in creation. We know the Father was involved in creation, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is saying here that he has been working with the Father since the beginning of time. He is claiming here to be God. Now, if you think that I am wrong in that interpretation, I think I am supported by verse 18, where the Jews get it. They understand what he's saying, that he is making himself equal with God. And so Jesus responds in verse 19, Truly, truly, I say to you, 
The son can do nothing of himself unless it is something that he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. Now, Jesus never uses that truly, truly formula as a throwaway line, okay? He, he is saying, perk up, listen to what I'm saying. This is serious. And uh, the first thing he affirms is, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something that he sees the father doing. Now, he's not making a statement there of his weakness or limitation, but rather that he is unified with the Father in his nature and in his will. They are so inextricably bound together that they do not act independently of one another. They have the same nature. So what the Father does, the Son does. What the Son does, the Father is doing. Uh, they are one in their actions. And so in Jesus, we see the Father and understand what he is like. And in Jesus' works, we see the Father's works. So what he's saying is there was never a moment when Jesus was on the earth in which he did not do what the Father was doing, and he was expressing at every moment the life and the action of the Father. They are one. Now, at the same time, these verses demonstrate, as I said, that the Son is subordinate to the Father in carrying out the divine plan. The Father sent the Son into the world, as verse 23 indicates, and many, many other verses in John. And the reason Jesus came, as we saw in John 4, was to do the will of my Father. He wanted to accomplish the Father's work. And so the Son voluntarily submitted to the Father to carry out the divine plan which culminated in the cross. Now here's where you need to be careful. Subordination does not imply inferiority. Okay? And uh, here's where, and I'm going to interject something that's not in the notes, but here's where the so-called biblical feminists, and there is no such thing, but they claim that the Bible teaches that women are totally equal to men, granted, but then they go further and say there are no distinctions of roles. Women are not to submit to their husbands in marriage. That messes up the whole point of marriage. You understand why God ordained marriage? It is to be a picture of Christ and the church. That's what Ephesians 5 says. And the church submits to Christ. Christ submits to the Father. And if we don't submit in our marriages in the proper way, we're messing up the whole picture of the Trinity. But Jesus is not inferior to the Father, just as a wife is not inferior to her husband. We are equal persons. But for the roles that God has assigned to demonstrate the glory of the Trinity, we are to have that kind of a relationship in marriage. That's that. Well, that wasn't in the minutes in the notes here, but that was a freebie. You can just tack that on. The last part of verse 19 then explains why it is impossible for the son to do anything of himself unless it's something he sees the father doing. Jesus adds, for whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. 
And again, Dr. Carson explains, it is impossible for the son to take the independent, self-determined action that would set him over against the father as another god, for all the son does is both coincident with and coextensive with all that the father does. And so Jesus' point here is that while he is the son of God, totally equal with the father, as the son, he carries out the father's will. He is subordinate to the father and obedient to him. But the point I'm making is simply no one other than God in human flesh could make the statements of verses 17 and 19. A third way that Jesus is equal to God is in his love and knowledge, and that's verse 20. Jesus is explaining how the Son can do whatever the Father does. He says, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing, and the Father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. So what Jesus is saying is, the Father's love for the Son is seen in the fact that he discloses to the Son everything that he's doing. John MacArthur is uh, preaching through John right now, and uh, he preached on this text a couple months back. And uh, in a sermon, he gave some startling implications of verse 20. And since he's a lot more eloquent and uh, deep thinking than I am, I'm going to quote for you what he said. It's rather interesting. He said this, It might shake you up to hear this, but at the heart of God's redeeming work, is not God's love for you, not God's love for me, not God's love for the world, not God's love for sinners. At the heart of redemption is the Father's love for the Son and the Son's love for the Father. You say, well, didn't Jesus die because he loved us? In a secondary sense. But in a primary sense, Jesus died because he loved the Father. Didn't the Father send Jesus to the cross because he loved us? In a secondary sense, in a primary sense, he sent the Son to the cross because he loved the Son. You say, well, how am I to understand that? You're to understand it in this way, that the whole purpose of redemption, the whole purpose of creation, the whole purpose of the world, the universe, human history, is so that God can collect a bride to give to his son, a bride that's an expression of his love. The father will give to the son a redeemed humanity, collected one day in heaven forever and ever and ever, to praise and serve and glorify the son and always be an everlasting expression of the father's love. Pretty deep stuff, huh? I'll get you on that for quite a while. But Jesus' point in verse 20 is that the Father's love for the Son is seen in the fact that he shows him all that he himself is doing. Now, I take that, some would not, but I understand that to be during his earthly life and ministry, the Father disclosing to the Son all that he's doing. Because before he came to earth, Jesus shared all knowledge with the Father, as far as I understand it. And uh, there was no need for disclosure. In Colossians chapter 2, in verse 3, 
Paul says that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And we have those treasures in God's word, the Bible, which speaks of Christ. And so the Bible is sufficient for us, it says in First, Second Peter 1, for all of life and godliness. Just this week, I read somebody emailed me and sent me an attachment of a, a defense by some a leading evangelical of why we need psychology. And he wasn't talking about so-called Christian psychology. He was talking about worldly psychology to supplement God's word to help us with problems. And I had to write back a refutation of that, but I, I don't get it. I mean, if the Bible is sufficient for life and godliness, is there anything else besides life and godliness that we need? And the Bible was written to help us know how to love God and love one another, the two great commandments. And don't all our problems stem from a lack of our love for God or a lack of our love for one another? And so it seems to me that it's a cop-out to say we need to turn to guys like Sigmund Freud to get it together. Uh, the Bible tells us how to have healthy relationships, how to love God, how to love each other. I think it is sufficient. And that's all centered in Christ. Now, the greater works that Jesus refers to in verse 20, he goes on to expand on in verse 21 and uh, 22 and 23. Uh, the greater works, I guess 21, 22. The greater works are in verse 21, giving life to whomever he wishes. And in verse 22, judging all people. So we've seen, first of all, Jesus is equal to God in his nature. He's equal to God in his works. He's equal to God in his love and in his uh, knowledge. But fourthly, Jesus is equal to God in his sovereign power. That's verse 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. So that verse then is explaining how Jesus does the works the Father gave him to do, the greater works. He gives life to whom he wishes. Think about that claim. That is just startling. If any mere man said, I give life to whomever I wish, you know what we would say? Lock him up. This guy is loony. I mean, go over to the cemetery and try it. It doesn't work. Life is something only God has and only God can impart. And so, as I said, either Jesus is crazy is God. Now life here, on one level, refers to the fact that during his earthly ministry, Jesus could raise the dead. He did it on three recorded occasions. Luke 8, uh, excuse me, Luke 7, he raised the widow of Nain's son. Luke 8, he raised um, the Jairus' 12-year-old daughter. And then in John 11, he raises Lazarus from the dead. Um, at the end of the age, Jesus says down in verse 28 and 29 of our text that he is going to speak and everyone who is in the tombs, 
everybody who has ever died in all of history will come to life. Again, that's a God claim to be able to say that. But then all of Jesus' miracles, as I have pointed out in our study of John, he calls them signs because they are pointing to something else. They're pointing to spiritual truth. And so Jesus' ability to raise the physically dead to physical life is a picture of the fact that he can impart spiritual life to those who are dead spiritually. And he alludes to that in verse 24. He says, There truly, truly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. So he's talking about spiritual life there and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. And so um, Jesus claims he can impart spiritual life to those who lack it. Now, all three members of the Trinity are involved in that power. Jesus says he shares it with the Father in verse 21. The Father raises the dead. The Son raises the dead and gives life. And then in John 6.63, Jesus says it is the Spirit who gives life. And we saw that in John chapter 3, that the Spirit regenerates those who lack spiritual life. Um, Note also that uh, Jesus asserts his sovereignty in this, in verse 21. He says that the Son gives life to whom he the Son wishes. Leon Morris explains, men may not command the miracle. The Son gives life where he, not man, chooses. Now, in verse 24, of course, Jesus says that the way we have life, we believe in him, and uh, we have eternal life. We saw that back in John chapter 3, but the point of verse 21 is Jesus initiates the process. No one gets saved unless Jesus wills to save that person. It's called, by theologians, the doctrine of election. And as I explained last week, there are Christians who don't like that doctrine, but you need to embrace it because of this. If you think you share in your salvation with God because of something you did, you're going to take credit for it. And that's abominable. God gets all the glory. If you're saved, all you can say is, if he had not intervened, I would still be running my, as we sang earlier, my hell-bound course. I'd still just be going for evil. God intervened. All the glory goes to God. Yes, I had to believe. But God is the one who quickened me from the dead so that I could believe. It's his doing, not ours. Then a fifth way Jesus is equal with God is in judgment, verse 22. Jesus says, For not even the Father judges anyone, but he's given all judgment to the Son. Now, in verse 21, Jesus and the Father both can give life. But in verse 22, Jesus claims the Father has delegated all judgment to the Son, and as he explains in verse 27, the reason is because he is the Son of Man, because he took on human flesh, he died for sinners, and now is raised again to heaven. Uh, For that reason, the Father delegated all judgment to Jesus. 
Now, in John 3.17, we saw that the Son did not come into the world to condemn or judge the world. He came to save the world. But then, as John 3.18 explained, if you don't believe in Jesus, you're already under judgment. And if you die in that condition, you will pass into eternity under judgment, and there is no change at that point. And so the point is, Jesus didn't come to judge. He came to offer salvation to those already under judgment. And if you will believe in Jesus, then you will have eternal life. There's one other startling thought as you think about verse 22, that Jesus is going to judge everyone. Everyone who has ever lived in all of time will stand before Jesus for judgment. And here's the thought. If you've ever been in court, and the judge made a decision based on a lack of knowledge, he made a faulty decision, didn't he? Because he didn't have full knowledge. If he had known all the facts, he could have made perhaps a wiser decision. And the point is, if Jesus is going to judge you and me and every person who has ever lived in every culture and every time, he has to have all knowledge, not only of our lives and our circumstances, but of our very thoughts, and our motives. Otherwise, he can't judge justly. And we know he will be a just judge. And so again, this is a statement of deity. Either Jesus was crazy in making the claim of verse 22, or he is God. One final way that Jesus is equal with God is in his worship, verse 23. So that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And so, if Jesus is not fully God, then he just uttered blasphemy. I mean, if some cult leader gets up and says, you're to honor me just like you honor God, we would say, that man is evil to the core. I mean, who could make such a blasphemous statement and yet Jesus makes the statement because he is God. He is claiming to be God here. And that means this. You can test anybody's claim to believe in God. The Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, they all claim we believe in God. You can test it by what do they think of Jesus? Do they believe Jesus is equal with God in worship? And if not, they do not honor the Father. They don't believe in God. They just believe in a God of their own making. John MacArthur, in one of those sermons I was referring to on this text, he said that he was taping a Larry King show with Larry. And uh, during a break or after the show, Larry said to John, you know, John, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be okay. And John said, well, what do you mean you're going to be okay? And and uh, Larry said, I think I'm going to make it to heaven. And John said, based on what, Larry? And he said, and then John said he named a certain evangelist. John didn't name him, but a, a Christian evangelist. And Larry said, he told me that because I'm Jewish, I'm going to be okay. And John concludes that may be the worst thing that anybody told him. Uh, but to come from a Christian evangelist to tell him that, that's just unthinkable. That denies the gospel. Nobody will be okay before God because of race. That's very clear. John chapter 3, Nicodemus was a 
teacher of the Jews, and yet not okay. He needs to be born again. And uh, no one is going to stand before God and be okay if he has not honored Jesus as God and honored him just as he honors the Father. John Calvin put it this way, the name of God, when it is separated from Christ, is nothing else than a vain imagination. Or John himself puts it this way in 1 John 2.23, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. And so Jesus is equal to the Father in belief and in worship. We are to honor him as we honor the Father. I've read, and it's kind of hard for me to believe this, but I've read polls that say that a majority of Americans believe Jesus is God. Hard for me to believe that because I don't see the evidence. They must just believe it in sort of an intellectual, non-thinking sense. Because if you believe that Jesus is God, first off, you've got to repent of your sins. And secondly, you've got to repent of your good deeds. Because you can't trust your good deeds to go to heaven. They're not good enough. And then you've got to trust in Jesus as your only hope of heaven and submit your life totally to him. And that changes your life. But you can't just say, well, yeah, I believe that he's a great moral teacher. But God, well, I don't know about that. That's not an option, as C.S. Lewis pointed out. And I hope you've seen from the text, and I've labored to make it clear. Either you must say, Jesus is crazy and I renounce him. You've got to say, Jesus is God. And I believe in him. And I submit my life. Father, I pray that you would burn this into our thoughts. That we would bow before you every day. And adore and worship Jesus the eternal God who took on human flesh for our salvation. Help us to be bold in witness to those who deny Jesus and show them this text and others that are clearly statements that no man could make, no mere man, and that Jesus is fully human and yet he is fully God. It is a mystery to us and yet We accept the testimony of Scripture. I pray if there are any here, Lord, who have never trusted in Jesus, that your Spirit would open their eyes to see the glory of Christ as He is, and that they would see that they are sinners and condemned unless they believe in Jesus. They would do that immediately. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.